I don't know if you've seen that TV show, um, uh, what's it called? Todd Sampson's um, Life on the Line. Todd Sampson's Life on the Line. Any, anyone seen that TV show? One person. Great. Um, so I think it's probably because it's on ABC and um, none of you watch ABC. So the, the premise of the story is that of the, of the TV show is that he puts his life on the line in a bunch of scientific experiments. And this week's story was um, they were testing the properties of water to absorb heat. And so they built this device, this kind of little trolley that would um, run down a track into a swimming pool, but on the way down would run through a heated firing furnace at 900 degrees Celsius. And the only thing that he had to protect him was a pair of Speedos and a dousing of water. That's it, as he went down this track. And so, I mean, it was pretty intense, right? You could see his fear. You could sense the fear of the, the safety officer, of the director as they're planning this out. They tested, they checked, they double-checked, they triple-checked, they put a sack of potatoes on there and sent it down to make sure it was all working. And, and, but here's the deal, right? Todd Sampson is the one who has to put his faith in the, in the science in the laws of physics to know that he can run through that 900 degree heat just covered in a dousing of water and be completely fine. It's all well and good to say, I believe in the laws of physics. It's another thing to get on that trolley and go through the fire. Faith, sorry, fear can often be so crippling. And you could tell as Todd Sampson's on there that there was fear in him, but he had enough faith in the laws of science, to get on that trolley, get down through the fire, and he came out completely unharmed. And there was relief, everyone celebrated. But there was a man who had faith in something that he believed, more so than fear that drove him. And this morning, as we read this story, we're going to see how, how fear, this is going to trip me up all morning, fear and faith, how fear often leads to compromise. Dial the clock back a bit as we think about that contrast we had a few weeks ago of faith and sight. As, as Lot chose and walked by sight, as he looked across the land and picked the best pasture, pasture that was right near the city of Sodom, he exercised his sight and chose by sight and lived by sight, whereas Abram trusted the promises of God and lived by faith. Well, this morning, the contrast isn't so much between faith and sight, but faith and fear. And maybe that's just a subset of living by sight is fear. But we see this contrast in these stories here between faith and fear. You know, if you're not a believer here this morning, uh, I just want you to know that the Bible is really real about our heroes. It paints them as failures and messes and disasters. And I think it's one of the things that rings true as you read the story of the Scriptures is that the Bible is not afraid to just tell it how it is because this is a true story. This is how it played out. Abraham was a bit of a mess and we're not going to pretend that that wasn't true. And so as we read this, we're invited into this story of faith and fear. And we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 19, verse 30. Remember last week that um, Abram had prayed for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had prayed that the righteousness of a few would cover the many. And God 
in his mercy, he, he brings Lot and his family out of that city and then he rains down this atomic judgment upon that city and completely nukes it and destroys it. And we pick up the story this week of Lot and his daughters fleeing from that destruction. Chapter 19, verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. He lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, last night I lay with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger, also, the, the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called him Moab. He is father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son called Ben-Ami. And he is father of the Ammonites to this day. Lot's choices have been driven by fear. I mean, even if you remember the end of the, the story last week, as God has been gracious to him, right? He's fleeing the destruction that is about to come on Sodom. And he's pleading with the angels, don't send me into the hills because destruction might overcome me. They just send me to this little, this little city here. It's, it's called Zoar. Just send me there. And the reason that Lot does that is he's become so accustomed to city urban life. In the ancient Near East, cities afforded their, their inhabitants protection. And if it was a big enough city, it, it would have had a fortified wall. And Abraham, and Abraham, who's wandered the wilderness, has been wandering like a nomad, like a pilgrim, without the safety of a wall. And Lot has chosen the safety of a city. And so as he's driving away from this destruction that's coming, he's pleading with God, I, I can't really trust you, God, in the hills. Would you, would you provide me the protection of a city? And God's grace, he allows him to go there. But then in this weird twist, he decides that he doesn't want to live in the city of Zoar. Maybe he's af afraid of the people there. And so he decides to take his daughters and live in a cave in the hills. It's not just Lot who's living in fear, though. His two daughters also experience fear because Lot, as a father, his responsibility and duty is to provide husbands for his daughters to marry. He'd teed that up in Sodom, but he couldn't convince his son-in-laws to flee with them. And so here they are living in a cave in the mountains in isolation and Lot has failed to provide husbands for his daughters and there is a fear that begins to grip his daughters. It's the maternal fear of childlessness. And it's a legit fear. It's a fear that many here have encountered in the past. I mean, so many people identified with Jeff and Liz's story just a few weeks ago as they shared, as Jeff shared about their inability to have children and how they have adopted two children because his wife Liz and he weren't able to have children by normal means, by natural means. It's a legit fear for these daughters of Lot. 
The problem isn't so much that they lived in fear. The problem is what they did with that fear. And their fear drove them to compromise. Lot's daughters get him drunk. They sneak into his tent. They have sex with him. And they both fall pregnant. It's a mess. I mean, this is incest at best. This is incestual rape at worst. It's a mess. And it is fear that has driven Lot's daughters to do this. Fear. It's just the consequences of faith in the wrong direction, of fear in the wrong direction. That they've feared what their eyes have seen, they've feared the unknown. They have feared not being able to continue to have their name live on. The daughters take matters into their own hands, they manipulate, they they deceive. And the result of that fear, the result of those decisions, the result of that compromise is two people groups, two nations, the Moabites, the Ammonites, who as we read the story throughout Scripture, not only position themselves as enemies of God's people, but stand outside of God's covenant blessings because of a decision that Lot made, a decision based on fear. What should Lot have done? He should have returned to the Lord. He should have returned to Abraham, his uncle, the one who had been a provider and protector so many times in the past. We don't know why Lot didn't do that. Maybe it was pride, self-sufficiency. Maybe it was fear. He should have returned to the Lord. He should have returned to the, the one whom God has said, I will bless all of the earth through you. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. I was reminded of a story that, um, that um, Alnado told me about. He was uh, listening to a Tim Keller sermon. And Keller tells a story of um, these two African-American women from Harlem who go to a church in Midtown and become Christians as they hear the gospel. And they ask if they can join the church. And the church, this is 80 years ago, the church says no because you're black. And so a lady from this church, this German lady, befriended these two women and they asked her if they would come, if she would come down to Harlem and teach them the Bible so that they could grow in their new faith. And so she was, this German lady was um, engaged to be married to a, a man from New York. And she said to him, honey, um, I'm going to go down to Harlem and teach these African-American women the Bible and start a work there amongst them. And he said, if you do that, I won't marry you. In fact, if you do that, no one will marry you. And in that moment, as fear of the reality of the consequences of that decision strikes her, she looks down at the Scriptures and she reads for herself Isaiah 54.1. And these are the words that washed over her. Sing, O barren woman, for the children of the desolate will be more than the child of she who is married. And in that moment, she makes a decision to walk by faith and not live in fear of her husband's rejection of her. And she goes and she starts this Bible study with these women, which to this day is a flourishing church in Harlem in New York. And she said in that moment, she had this conviction that the choice she was making was a choice, in fact, for a better life. 
even if no one ever would marry her again. That's the decision that Lot and his daughters ought to have made, to live by faith and not by fear. But instead, they're governed by their fear. Fear of the unknown has led to devastation between Lot and his family. But you know, it's not just Lot. A few weeks ago, we looked at the contrast between Lot and Abraham. Lot lived by sight. Abraham lived by faith. This week, they're both a mess. This week, Abraham himself lives in fear. So let's pick up the story at the beginning of chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to his wife, said, sorry, of his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, that is, he had not yet slept with her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then the Lord said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and that you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you, you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all the things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done, this, you have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see? That you did this thing. And Abram said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say to me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abram and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who were, who were with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abram prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and his female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham and Sarah have this strategy, half truth, half lie, everywhere they go, that Sarah is to say, he is my brother. And Abraham will say, she is my sister. It's the same stunt they pulled back in Genesis 12 when they went down to Egypt and Pharaoh was there. Now the problem is it didn't work back then. 
Right? It didn't work with Pharaoh. Why would you try and do the same thing again when it didn't work? Why would you use the same strategy? And yet Abraham and Sarah and all their infinite wisdom decide that this is their thing. This is their strategy. This is how they're going to survive. Sarah at this point is 90 years old. Now it said in Genesis 12 when she's 65 years old that she's still a bit of a hottie and that Pharaoh takes her because she's beautiful. She's a vastly attractive woman. Here she's 90 and you've got to think to yourself, 25 years of aging, she still can't be the hot Sarah that she was all that time ago. And so why does Abimelech take her to be his wife? Well, chances are this is probably more of a politically motivated marriage, a marriage for power, a marriage to you know, maybe do some dealings with a very powerful man, powerful, wealthy man like Abraham. And so he takes her into his harem and they wait. Now, this is a custom that they did. They would bring a woman in and just wait to make sure that she wasn't pregnant before the king would then take her to be his wife. And in this moment, in this time of waiting, a couple of things happen. All of his household is barren. No one can have babies. And the second thing that happens is that God shows up to Abimelech in a dream. And he shows up to Abimelech. And he says to him, You're going to die, Holmes. At least that's how, I mean, it sounded, it sounded pretty gangster, didn't it? You're a dead man. You're going to die, Holmes. The question is, why does Abraham do this? That's exactly the question that Abimelech has for him. In verse 10, did you see what he says? And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see? What did you see about us as you came to the city? What did you notice that you did this Thing. And here's Abraham's response. He said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Why? Abraham is afraid. And his fear is these people do not fear the Lord. And so I will lie. There is so much irony as you read these these verses, this little narrative here, the irony is everywhere. And the first is Abraham's comments. He says, I'm the one who knows God. I am the God-fearer. And because you don't fear God, I'm going to be dishonest and lie. In effect, what he's saying is, I worship God. I just don't trust Him enough to be honest. You're like, you, like at, least he's, at least he's admitting it, right? But you're like, Abraham, did you, did you just hear the words that came out of your mouth then? The second thing is that is this contrast between Abimelech and Abraham. Abraham is the one who is supposed to fear God. Abimelech is the king who doesn't fear God, but you notice their roles are entirely reversed. It's Abimelech and his men who, f- who are afraid. They wake up early in the morning. There's no sleep-ins after Abimelech's dreams. Like, we're going to get this guy's wife back ASAP before we die. They fear the Lord. They act in obedience. Abraham, the one who is supposed to walk in faith before the face of the Lord, who worships the true and living God, is the one who operates in fear. And this godless king is the one who operates in faith. It's a crazy switch. It's an irony. But the final irony is the punishment on Abimelech's kingdom and family 
is that all of the women are barren. None of them have children. From the moment Sarah sets foot in that harem, none of them are able to have children. And part of God's reinstatement of Abimelech is that Abraham would pray for him and that they are healed. One prayer from Abraham and all of the women in the city of Gerar are taking their 12-week ultrasound photos and posting them on Instagram. There's babies everywhere because of one prayer from Abraham. Now pause and think about that for a second. It's been 25 years of praying for Abraham and Sarah. 25 years of pleading and asking God that he would fulfill the promise of a child. 25 years of pleading and waiting and then at the end of the month, nothing. At the end of the month, nothing. At the end of the month, nothing. And one prayer from Abraham and all of these women fall pregnant again. You've got to imagine being Abraham and Sarah at that point thinking, God, really? We pray for them? But what about us? When will this ever happen? What you see happening here in the life of Sarah and Abraham is people who are walking in fear instead of faith. And it leads to compromise and deceit and manipulation. But you know, in the end, fear, sorry, faith, faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is actually just fear in the right direction. Faith is fearing God above everything and everyone else. Faith is about clinging to the promises of God despite circumstance, despite opposition, despite what your eyes see, despite threats against your life. Faith is simply fear in the right direction. You see, faith for Abraham should have been to walk into the city of Gerar and say, yep, she's my wife and I trust the promises of God. The promises that God made all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 to bless us. The protection clause that God put in there. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Faith for Abraham should have looked like saying This is my wife. I trust the promises of God. It looks like fearing the Lord above fearing any king, any earthly king. You know, faced with the fear of the cross and the choice between personal comfort and difficult disobedience, Jesus chose to walk by faith. You see that happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays. And a number of the Gospels say he prays with great anguish and turmoil and anxiety. Now, why? No doubt Jesus is fearful of the unspeakable pain that he is about to encounter at the cross. The unspeakable pain that he is about to encounter as Pilate orders him to be flogged within an inch of his life. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He falls on his knees and the scripture says he sweats and it's like blood drops of blood dripping off him and pulling on the ground and he cries out, God, if there is another way, if there is another way, take this cup. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. 
in the face of fear of what stood before Jesus. He walks in faith. You know, there are two types of fear of the Lord. The first fear of the Lord is a negative fear. It's the fear of the wrath and anger of God at our sin because we've rejected God and turned our backs on Him. The second type of fear of the Lord is a positive fear. It doesn't fear the wrath and anger of God because we, we trust and know that Jesus has turned his wrath aside and taken upon himself, as we saw last week, all of God's anger and wrath. That the Father is no longer angry at those who have trusted in Jesus. And so we're left with this fear of the Lord that looks like awe and reverence and worship. Those who fear the Lord, in a positive sense, are those who have trusted in the death of Jesus. They do not fear God's wrath. They do not fear His anger. They simply fear the most powerful King and Lord. They revere Him and worship Him. And in the end, the most potent antidote for fear of man is a healthy fear of the Lord. And Jesus calls all of his disciples to shift the focus of their fear, to to change the direction from a horizontal fear of man to a vertical fear of the Lord. It's faith in the right direction. This is what he says in Matthew 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body. That's a horizontal fear. That's fear of man. Do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Faith is fear in the right direction. It fears God above any person, above any circumstance, above any obstacle. But you know, the reality is that all of us have fear of man. We all live with a quota of that in our lives. I mean, you can call it what you want. You can call it, Low self-esteem, peer pressure, codependency, fear of man, whatever it is, call it what you want. We all know that that's a reality for us. The self-help solution is you've just got to love yourself more. Sometimes the church's solution has been, God thinks you're great. But the real solution, the real answer is, you know what? God knows that you are just like Abram that you are just like Lot, that you are weak, that you are full of fear, that you do not walk in faith and that he loves you and uses you still. The solution is not to have an inflated and heightened view of yourself, but to have a heightened view of God. Fear of the Lord is the most potent antidote to fear of man. In the end, the answer to fear is not Stop being a wimp and harden up for Jesus. That's not how it works. We will only ever move from fear to faith when we comprehend the beauty of the glory of God and the wonder of the gospel. The good news that God, the Father, the the Creator, the King of the universe is for you that He smiles over you, that He delights in you. When you get that reality, you are free from living in fear of the opinions and approval of others. Jesus Himself, doesn't He say to us, 
Fear not, little flock. Fear not, my children. Fear not, my people. For it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. Fear ought to melt in light of the gospel and disappear because I know that God loves me. I know that He is for me. As Paul says in Romans 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, everyone. And who cares? Because God is for me. Who can be against us? Everyone. And who cares? You know, it's not until we have a healthy fear of the Lord that we will ever be the missionaries that God calls us to be. That we'll ever reach this city with the good news the way that we hope to. Because when we live in fear of man, we will be too afraid of our failure, too afraid of what people might think, too afraid of losing friendships, too afraid of our damaged reputation to ever speak the words of truth and hope. Fear of failure that can lead to compromise, can't it? I mean, you've, you've been there. You've heard the comments. You, you don't really believe God exists, do you? Well... Well, what's your personal opinion of my sexuality? Oh, I prefer not to talk about it. Oh, you mean to say God punishes sin? Well, God wouldn't go that far. Fear so often can lead us towards compromise. And it's only until we get the approval of the Father, the wonder of the gospel, the fact that God is glorious, when we fear Him, we will learn what it looks like to not walk in fear of anyone else. Ed Welsh says this, such a profound comment. He says, our problem, our problem is that we need people for ourselves. We need their approval. We need their opinions. We need to be in their good books. We need people for ourselves more than we love people for the glory of God. Kind of stings, doesn't it? We need people for ourselves more than we love them for the glory of God. The task of the Great Commission is to love them less and love God more. Sorry, to, to need them less and to love them more. To need them less and love them more. But imagine what it would look like to have an army of missionaries across this city who did not walk by fear but walked by faith. Imagine what it would be, be like for a church full of people who said, I don't really care what you think because I know what my father thinks. I don't really care what the culture says. I walk by faith. I trust Jesus and I cannot help but speak of what I've seen and heard. Imagine a church like that. John Wesley says in this beautiful quote, Give me a hundred preachers who fear nothing but sin, desire nothing but God. I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Missionaries, people who would walk by faith and not be buckled and bent by the fear the culture puts on them. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others about the good news of Jesus. I'm really excited later this year we're going to be doing a, I think it's a 29-week series on the book of Acts. 
And what we will see as we walk through Acts time and time again, despite the cost, despite the opposition, despite the threats of death, despite death itself, that people in faith continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Imagine a church full of missionaries like that. The question for us is, will we trust the promises of God? Will we do it? Will we trust God when He says the fields are ripe for harvest? Will we trust Jesus when He says, I will build my church? Will we trust the Scriptures when it says they will listen? Or will we buckle under the pressure and fear of the culture that is so aggressively trying to silence the Christian message? This is a call for us, church, to walk by faith, to cling to the promises of God and to fear in the right direction. And the reality is that many of you are already doing that in multiple ways. The stories that I've heard of people who are walking by faith in the face of fear. Some of you who are living by faith in the midst of loneliness. And rather than choosing to satisfy your desires, you choose purity and singleness and holiness. There are some who are living by faith with the fear of losing your job, choosing honesty over indiscretion and lies. There are some who are living by faith at the threat of their reputation and choosing to side with truth. There are some who are living by faith in the light of uncertain financial circumstance and choosing generosity rather than stinginess. There are some who are living in the light of difficulty and pain and sickness and choosing joy rather than bitterness. There are some who are experiencing past hurt and choosing forgiveness rather than harboring a grudge. You are walking by faith and not in fear. And I want to say to those of you this morning who find yourself there, that God loves it. He loves it when you choose faith over fear. To quote my old pastor Ray, he said, it puts a smile on the face of God as big as the harbour bridge. He loves it when we walk by faith instead of fear. Today, God is calling us to a deeper trust, to a deeper faith, that we would cling to His promises, that we would not be driven by fear, but that we would walk by faith. And the question is, will we do it? Will we do it? As Todd Sampson sat at the top of that, that ladder, he was the one who held the trigger to let the trolley run down into that fire, 900 degrees heat. He was the one. The question is, will he press the button and go and be governed by faith or will he sit there and in fear not do it? He closed by sharing a story of a kid from my past youth group. Uh, his name was Reese, and he'd become a Christian through our youth ministry. And one of the things that he wanted to do to remind himself of his new identity in Christ was that he drew a cross in a black, thick black texture on the back of his hand every morning as he went to school to remind himself that he is a child of God, that his sins have been forgiven, that he lives in light of a new reality of forgiveness and freedom because of the cross, and he would draw it on his hand. One of the costs for him 
of his newfound faith was ending a relationship that he had with the most popular girl in school. She was devastated that he broke up with her. All of his mates couldn't really understand it. And all they saw was a black cross written on his hand. And so to kind of pay him back for what he had done to this girl, a couple of the guys decided that they would mock him by drawing a cross on their own hands. And eventually his whole year group would come to school every day mocking him by drawing these pretend crosses on his hand, walking around, bagging him out for being a Christian. And every day he would draw the cross back on his hand and walk by faith instead of fear. It's the story of a 15-year-old kid who did the exact opposite of what Abraham did, who did the exact opposite of what Lot did, who in fact was like his saviour Jesus, who in the face of opposition and fear chose faith. And our prayer is this morning that we would do the same. And we're going to worship that Jesus now, who in faith laid down his life for us, his body broken, his blood shed. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder of that. And so I invite those of you who love Jesus to celebrate this meal with us together. Come forward and remember that these symbols of bread and grape juice, as you dip the bread into the grape juice and eat it, that this is a reminder that you do not fear the wrath of the Lord anymore. That God cannot be angry at your sin because He delights in the sacrifice of Jesus but that in fact we have a healthy, positive fear of reverence, awe and worship. Our prayer team will be up the back and they would love to pray for anyone who needs prayer this morning. Maybe there are those here this morning who are fighting fear in their life and you need faith. Our prayer team would love to pray that God by His Spirit would fill you with the faith that you need for this week. Maybe you realise this morning that in fact you do fear the wrath of God that Jesus' blood does not cover you. And for the first time this morning, you want to give your life to Jesus. Our prayer team would love to pray for you and lead you in that, to encounter what it looks like to walk before the God of all the universe with not an ounce of fear at His anger and wrath. If that's you, then please do that this morning. And finally, our band is going to lead us in worshipping Jesus in song. And our prayer is that these songs would stir faith in your heart. So why don't you join me as I pray and we respond. God, we worship you this morning. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that you delight in us. God, that you are glorious, that you are weighty, that you are high and lifted up, that there is no one like you. And that because of what Jesus has done, you love us, you are for us. You remind us of that truth this morning, that you will never be angry with us, that your wrath does not rest upon those who trust in Jesus, that you have set us free to enjoy you, to fear you, yes, but with awe and reverence and worship. God, we pray that we would be a church that is full of faith, that we would not buckle at an aggressive culture that tries to silence your people. God, that we would not buckle in the fear of the unknown. That we would not buckle in the fear of the disapproval of others. That we would not buckle 
against the pressure of family, against the pressure of a boss, but that we walk by faith. God, we need you. Strengthen us by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen.